Doing a daily Bible devotional has been the best thing that I've done for myself. My time in the Old Testament only proves to me again and again and again that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. When I'm reading the New Testament, I read it within the context of when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the New Testament is just an expansion of one of those two thoughts. Those are the two lenses through which I think with my mouth open as I read through the Old and New Testaments. Join me, won't you, for another adventure in Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Get your coffee and your Bible and join me, won't you? Greetings, salutations, welcome to another fabulous day in the Lord's neighborhood, and welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host, and here's my coffee. Ah, in the beginning, there was coffee, and lo, it was very good. Today, we're going to be continuing our jaunt into chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, and where Saul gets his first test as king. And you get to hear me, oh, think with my mouth open. That's my tag. I've been thinking with my mouth open since 1975 when I became a Christian. It's my way of solving problems. I'm a verbal person. And uh, it took my wife a number of years to realize that whenever I'm faced with a, an important decision, I have to verbally walk my way down the path of every possible decision and that, that helps me to clarify what's the right thing to do or the right direction to go. It took her a lot of years to realize that I'm not making plans. I would always talk about guitars because I'm a guitar teacher. And she was so afraid for so many years that I was actually talking about going out and buying one of these really expensive guitars when I was talking about it all the time. And I was trying to figure out what kind of guitar I wanted and what kind of guitar I needed. And she, it, it, with her listening, with her, her, she was afraid that I was talking about that I was going to go out and be buying all these things. She finally realized that this is how I solve problems. I break them down and I talk myself through them verbally. It's kind of like I have a, a uh, an invisible whiteboard and I'm making these lists on this whiteboard in front of me. I have to talk myself through it. Well, that's the process I use when I do these devotionals. Psalms 1, blessed is a man who delights in the law of the Lord in it. It delights in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. The word meditate means to mutter aloud to oneself. That's kind of where I go with this. So you get to get a peek into what's going on in my brain. And when I'm doing these devotionals, uh, I'm really keeping my eye out for what God is telling Paige. Uh, and, and sometimes these these verses will trigger a response in me that might not seem to be directly related to what I just read, but that doesn't matter to me so much. It's like I've, I've given God permission, as if he needs it. I've given God permission to trigger anything in my mind if it's something that I need to deal with in my mind. And today we're going to be dealing with how Saul was finally... Um, in the eyes of Israel, how he was finally accepted as king. So let's get started. Let's read it. Chapter 11, 
Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Now, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus in his Antiquities, the siege of Jabesh Gilead was actually part of a larger campaign by Nahash. So he was pushing on Israel from the from the east. Philist, Philistia, Philistia, or the Philistines were pushing on Israel from the west. So Nahash the Ammonite was an enemy of Israel. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. A couple things here. Nahash's threat to gouge out the right eye of every Jabeshite may imply their rebellion against a previously established overlordship. In other words, it's a very real possibility that they had already had a contract or uh, a, a covenant with Nahash the Ammonite, but they had broken it, swearing allegiance to Israel. So this might be his way of just dealing with the rebellion of somebody who broke a previous treaty. Again, Josephus in his Antiquities also remarks that the loss of the right eye would have made military service impossible because the sight of the left eye would be hindered by the shield, which they'd hold in their left hand, the left arm, right? Shield here, spear or sword in the right hand. So with the right eye gone, their field of vision would be impaired, impaired in their left eye, so they'd be useless for military service. Interesting. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Now, Saul, after his initial announcement as king by Samuel, had returned home. And Saul was in the field. He was a farmer. He was he had crops to raise. And just when Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. All right. Israel had, announced, had had the announcement already that Saul was to be their king. They wanted a king. Saul was made their king by God, by Samuel. And then he returned home. And this response about why his own people were weeping shows that they didn't have much confidence in Saul as a king. But Saul hadn't been tested yet. Uh, so when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, and here he put on his king hat, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. The terror of the Lord fell on the people. They came together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered, 30, numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. So there's a rather large army. But Saul st stood up and is taking action, just like a king would. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. 
When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. Uh, kind of interesting here. In the uh, Zondervan's commentary, it said that this, what was actually literally said, you can do whatever seems, you can do to us whatever seems good in your eyes. It's an ironic pun on Nahash's earlier threat to gouge out the right eye of any rebellious Jebusite. They're saying, you can do us whatever is good in your eyes. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. Smart move. This is what a military man would do. And during the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day, around noon. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So the people then said to Samuel, Okay, who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Remember in the previous chapter, there was a group of people. Let me go up here to it. Um, some scoundrels said, verse 27, How can this fellow save us? They despised him. They brought him no gifts. So at the end of this battle, which Saul won gloriously and easily, they started raising the hue and cry. Who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us and we can put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Now that's a kingly thing to do. That's the act of a benevolent dictator. And Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. Saul's going to remind the people of Israel, you have a king now. And he just did some king things. And this is kind of what it's going to be like. You don't have a lot of choice in a lot of things now that you have a king. Stop and think about that for a second. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. All right. A person's rise to leadership in ancient Israel, according to uh, a commentary I read, can be analyzed as following a three-step three step process. And this actually applies to us today too. And this is where my application is going to come into play. First, there's the designation as the Lord's choice. Saul was designated by Samuel, God's voice, God's voice piece, God's prophet. Saul was designated by Samuel and he had a prophetic, a religious prophetic experience where the Spirit of God came on him and he prophesied. So there's proof that the Lord chose him. And then there's demonstration of valor, having the Lord's power through performing a heroic feat. In other words, doing something that leaves no doubt in anybody's mind that God is with you and that God chose you for this. And that's what happened here at Jabesh Gilead. And then there's confirmation by the people. The people recognizing, yes, Saul, you are our king. Saul is then crowned at Gilgal. And from that moment on, he is a full-fledged king in the eyes of the people. He's been designated by God. He's proven he's designated by God. The power of God is in him. And now the people confirm that he was designated and proven and chosen by God. And they accept him as king and he's crowned. So what application 
can I bring out of this? Well, here's the thing. There was a three-part process that we can see in Saul's confirmation as king. First of all, there was a representative of God in Saul's life, Samuel, who told Saul, you're going to be king. So God revealed to Saul through Samuel that he was going to be king of Israel. The second step in the process was Saul did some things that something that showed the world that he was indeed a king. He confirmed his calling through tasks that demonstrated that he was indeed God's choice to be king. He went and defeated the Ammonites. Samuel told Saul, you're going to be king. When the opportunity to act as a king came up, he acted as a king. And then third, the people, the general populace confirmed, yes, you're supposed to be our king. We see that. Samuel, God says you're supposed to be king. You acted like a king. Then you're a king. Now, the parallel in my life would be that years and years ago, I took a um, spiritual gifts test. And that spiritual gift test revealed that I have three primary spiritual gifts operating in my life, teaching, administration, and prophecy. Now, I took that initially as God calling me to be a preacher or a teacher because I figured those three gifts should be prominent in a teacher-preacher's life, and I still think that. But this is where my path started to diverge from Saul's, what happened with Saul. There was nobody in the body of Christ that confirmed that to me. There's nobody in the body of Christ who said, you're called to be a preacher, you're called to be a teacher, a pastor. Um, there was nobody that that agreed with what my heart was trying to tell me. Paige, you're supposed to be a preacher or a pastor. Nobody in the body of Christ, body of Christ speaking on behalf of God spoke that word into me. And that I'm not going to lie. There were times when that hurt me a little bit. Couldn't they see that I'm supposed to be a pastor or a preacher? Apparently nobody did. But what was confirmed to me, and it came about years later, uh, someday I'll tell you the whole story because it's really fascinating, but it's really a long story. Years later, I had everything stripped away from me. I lost my job in the tech industry and there were no jobs in that industry for me around the metro Atlanta area. None. I was out of work with no prospect of work. And the only thing, the only thing available to me, the only thing available to me was teaching guitar. And that had never occurred to me. But my family needed to eat. And we needed to have a roof over our head. So I started teaching guitar. And I discovered that I was pretty good at teaching kids guitar. Now, this was good news for me because that meant I started to generate income. And when you've had no income, generating income is a good thing. But I still had this thought in the back of my head. Why aren't I a pastor or a preacher? Because isn't that what those spiritual gifts, teaching, administration, prophecy are? Well, my wife and I had a discussion several years into this process of me starting to teach uh, guitar. And by the way, 
word got out in the Christian community in the metro Atlanta area that I was a decent guitar teacher, and I got hired by several Christian schools and homeschool co-ops to teach their children music, and I developed a good reputation in those arenas. My wife told me once, she says, you know, uh, what are your spiritual gifts again? And I said, well, teaching, administration, and prophecy. She says, okay. Is it safe to say that all your students that you're teaching are Christians or at least come from Christian families? I said, yeah, that's my primary source of students. She said, is it safe to say that you're teaching the next generation of worshiper believers? I said, yeah. Light's starting to go on. She went, check. She says, are you booking lessons? Are you taking money for these lessons? Are you budgeting? Are you scheduling? I said, yeah. She says, gosh, that sounds so much like administration. Check. And then she said, are you speaking God's words into the lives of your students whenever you have a chance? I said, absolutely I am, and I do. And she says, honey, that's prophecy. She says, all those spiritual gifts are are on full display in you as a Christian music teacher teaching Christian musicians. Now, a couple things happened there. First of all, the spiritual gifts were verified and my use of these spiritual gifts was verified and displayed and I got confirmation from my wife and then from others in the Christian community that this was my calling. I am called to be a Christian music teacher. There was the inner calling. There was the public confirmation by pastors, by religious leaders. And then there was general public accolades or or general public confirmation that, of course, this is what you are. And so from about 2005 forward, I have been very comfortably and ensconced as a Christian music teacher, teaching the next generation of worshiper believers. I teach guitar, bass, ukulele, music theory, music composition, whatever the musical need I can can teach. And I'm at peace. This is my place in the body of Christ. I'm not called to be a pastor. There was not one person in the body of Christ who would confirm that I was supposed to be a pastor or a preacher. None. But everybody around me confirms, yeah, you're a Christian music teacher. That's what your calling is. You're demonstrated. You love it. You're successful at it. And it's as plain as the nose in your face. So sometimes, perhaps if you're thinking that you're called to be something, but nobody around you is confirming that. You need to listen to that. I didn't see any other context in which these three spiritual gifts, teaching, administration, and prophecy, would work together. I was so narrow-minded. My my view of ministry was this wide. God's view of ministry was this wide. Ah, Isn't that amazing? And once I discovered that, and I discovered my place in the body of Christ, there's a peace that comes with that and a sense of being established. This is what I'm supposed to do. 
this is what I'm supposed to be. That's what happened to Saul. And that's what happened to me. So if you're trying to figure out what your place in the body of Christ is, think about this. What are your giftings? Take a spiritual gifts test. What are your giftings? What, Where are your talents and giftings? What area are they in? And then is anybody in your life affirming that? Is anybody in your life giving you any sense of direction about where you're supposed to go, what you're supposed to do? If not, go to your pastors, go to your deacons, go to your elders and ask them what they see in you. And then do it. And if you're called to do it and gifted to do it, you'll be successful in doing it. And then everybody around you will affirm that this is what you're called to do and called to be. So that's kind of what I take out of this. I'm very, I'm very encouraged. All right. As usual, I'm Paige. Here's my coffee. And may it please the court, the coffee is still very good. And I am out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So what did you think about today's Bible devotional? Email me and let me know your thoughts at ffog at me.com.